Um, this morning's reading is from Mark chapter 10, and it's verses 32 to 45. The first section is entitled, Jesus Predicts His Death a Third Time. They were on their way up to Jerusalem with Jesus leading the way, and the disciples were astonished, while those who followed were afraid. Again, he took the twelve aside and told them what was going to happen to him. We are going up to Jerusalem, he said, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the teachers of the law. They will condemn him to death and will hand him over to the Gentiles, who will mock him and spit on him, flog him and kill him. Three days later, he will rise. And then the next section is entitled, The Request of James and John. Then James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came to him. Teacher, they said, we want you to do for us whatever we ask. What do you want me to do for you, he asked. They replied, let one of us sit at your right and the other at your left in your glory. You don't know what you are, you don't know what you're asking, Jesus said. Can you drink the cup I drink or be baptized with the baptism I am baptized with? We can, they answered. Jesus said to them, you will drink the cup I drink and be baptized with the baptism I am baptized with. But to sit at the right or left is not for me to grant. These places belong to those for whom they have been prepared. When the, Gentile, when the, when the ten heard about this, they became indignant with James and John. Jesus called them together and said, you know that those who are regarded as rulers of the Gentiles lord over them and their high officials exercise authority over them. Not so with you. Instead, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant, and whoever wants to be first must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Amen. There are some verses that uh, are worth memorizing. In John's Gospel, it's obviously that 3.16. In Mark's Gospel, if there was an equivalent, it would be this verse that we read. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. It's a key verse because it touches on two critical things that are really at the heart of what we believe why Jesus came and what the cross is all about. And that's one of the things that you learn as you go through Mark's gospel and as, as, as Jesus leads the disciples towards the cross is an understanding, or some understanding of just what he's doing. And the second thing is what it means to be a follower of the one who goes to the cross. Not to be served, but to serve and to give life. And if you've been reading Mark's gospel, as Jesus, particularly in chapters 8 to 10, moves towards Jerusalem, he is moving towards his own death. And as he's doing that, he begins to intensify his teaching as to what it means to follow him on the way of the cross. And in, in one sense, that's what the whole period of Lent is supposed to be about, reflecting as we move towards the cross, not just what did Jesus do for me, but what does it mean to sacrificially follow him? And in those chapters, Jesus has been spelling things out, predicting them. Chapter 8, verse 31, the Son of Man must suffer and be rejected and killed and then rise. 
Chapter 9, verse 30, the Son of Man is to be betrayed and killed and then rise. Chapter 13, 33, very explicitly, in Jerusalem, by the scribes and the Pharisees, tried, condemned, handed to the Gentiles, mocked, spat on, flogged and killed and rise. But in this verse, he doesn't only tell them when and how he will die. He tells them why. The Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. If you want a second memory verse after John 3.16, there it is. The word ransom in Greek is, is, is lutron, and it means a price paid, a sacrificial payment that you make when you go to a temple, or a price that's paid to release a slave, to let them free. And so Jesus is saying, I'm going to die to make a sacrifice to buy the freedom of many people. I'm going to die that you and I might be free, to die in our place for our freedom. Now, we can say that because we're sort of used to saying that, but actually when you stand back from it, it is a bit of a problem, and many people point this out, don't they? Why does God need a sacrifice? If God is loving, why can't God just forgive us? Why does it need to take Jesus dying, his son? And that's often an objection to the gospel. Richard Dawkins called the gospel massive child abuse. A father and a son. What's this all about? Why doesn't a loving God just forgive without all of that? And the answer, in one sense, is simply this. Jesus doesn't die because God's not loving to make him loving. Jesus, his son, dies because God is love. You see, put it this way. If you love someone, you want to meet their needs. Yeah? You want to meet their needs. Maybe their financial needs, maybe their emotional needs, maybe their personal needs. Whatever it is, you want to meet their needs. And uh, if you love someone who is needy, that will cost you emotionally in terms of your time. Um, it's pretty easy to love someone that hasn't got any needs because it doesn't cost you anything. But if you, if you, if you love a person who is needy, that will cost you an awful lot um, because their troubles become yours. And they can become demanding and that can be emotionally draining and in order to fill them up, to help them out, you need to be willing to drain yourself as you do to give your time, your money, your pain, your love, your effort. And sometimes that cost can be so high that you want to run away. It's one of the reasons why some of us avoid people who are needy, isn't it? Because we will feel drained by what we need to give them. Maybe you see that most obviously if you think of a, a newborn child. Because raising and loving a newborn child is, is costly. And it really matters though, doesn't it? Because if that child is to grow and develop safely and properly, the parents will have a huge sacrifice to make. In order for that child to grow and become an independent, fully adjusted adult 20 years later, the parents will need to be those who lose sleep 
and keep going, who clean up poo and keep going, who experience heartbreak and worry as that teenager stays out late later on, who pay a huge financial cost. I mean, it's been calculated what it costs parents to raise a child, and it's more than your mortgage. The cost of doing that, all that the child must grow. And here's the other reality with it. If the parents aren't willing to make that sacrifice, the child will pay the price. We've all seen folk like that who think they can have a child and both of them can carry on fully in their careers, fully in their social life and everything else, and the child is neglected. You need to sacrifice if you're a parent your independence, your choices, your resources, and if you don't sacrifice, the child will. If you don't pay the price, they will. You need to make, as it were, a substitutionary sacrifice in order that they might live. Is that parenting? Is that fair enough, parents? Is that what you've done? I think it probably is. Or it's been done for you. I wonder if there's any Harry Potter fans here today. Come on, admit it. Harry Potter fans, oh, it's more than that. Secret Harry Potter fans have watched a, book, watched a film or read a book. Lots of us, yeah, have read a bit of Harry Potter. And, and, and there's a bit in Harry Potter in, in the first book where we learn that the evil Lord Voldemort has tried to kill Harry. And when the evil wizard tries to kill Harry, he can't touch him with his evil spell. And the, instead of that, the villain experiences huge pain. And why is all of that? Well, Professor Dumbledore is asked later, why couldn't the evil wizard Voldemort touch Harry? And the professor says this to Harry. Your mother died to save you. And that love is so powerful as your mother's love for you leaves its own mark. Not a scar, not a visible sign. But to have been loved so deeply will give you some protection forever. Remember that bit if you've been a Harry Potter fan? If you haven't, read it. It's great. And here is what Tim Keller says in his book on Mark's Gospel. And I would tell people to read this book, but except you'll find I've cribbed a lot of my sermon from it. But his book on Mark's Gospel, here's what he says of that encounter in Harry Potter. Why is Dumbledore's statement so moving? Because we know from experience, from the mundane to the dramatic, that sacrifice is at the heart of real love. We know that anyone who's ever done anything that made a difference for us, a parent, a teacher, a mentor, a friend, a spouse, sacrificed in some way, stepped in and accepted some hardship that we would not get hit with it ourselves. And so often the, the reason that fairy tales and books connect with us is because they say something that we know from our own experience is true. Self-sacrifice is at the core of every good relationship, a willingness to give up ourselves and serve the other. If you look at any happy marriage or any happy family that you know, that will be at the heart of it. I 
was a reading of the story of two incredibly selfish people, Mr. and Mrs. Carlyle. And Samuel Butler, um, who was a poet, wrote this. How good of God to cause Carlyle and Mrs. Carlyle to marry each other and so make two people miserable instead of four. Misery comes with selfish people. And God in his love comes to rescue us from sin and evil and death. And he does it as a parent does it by taking on a substitutionary sacrifice for us. Now, in one sense, every religion understands this. Because every primitive religion had people coming. And what did they do in a temple? Whatever pagan religion it was, they brought a sacrifice, didn't they? They brought a sacrifice because there was some idea that a sacrifice was going to be needed to be made in order to make things right. And in a sense, why human beings did that in their primitive religions? Because that was their understanding. Where things have been made right for me in my life is because somebody else has sacrificed. So the two things are connected. But no primitive religion ever had this idea that God himself would step in and pay the price. The Son of Man came not to serve, but be served and give his life a ransom for many. And it's not just that he comes and does that for us, but also he comes and loves like that and shows us and does that sacrifice for us that it might also transform us as we learn and are transformed by it. You see, that's what James and John don't get in this story. Jesus is talking about the agony of his death and the horrors that he's going to suffer, and he's going to do all of that for them, and and, and their response is not worship. They might have gone, oh, Lord, you obviously love us so much, you're willing to do all that for us. No, they come, and what do they say? Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask. The response to Jesus when he talks about sacrifice is not, how can we learn to love like you love and give ourselves for others? The response is, what's in it for me? It's really the worst prayer in the world. The Guinness Book of Records had a record of bad prayers this would be it. It's not, Lord, let your will be done. It's, Lord, let my will be done. Let my needs be met. Let me be great. That's what their prayer is at. Lord, let my dreams be fulfilled. So James and John come and they call Jesus teacher, but they're not following his teaching, are they? This blatant self-seeking. It's about what it's it for me. I want to have cabinet seats in your government. I want to be important. I want to get even more out of your sacrifice um, so that I can be the top dog. Now, it's interesting because we can sort of laugh at James and John, but here's the thing. What are our own dreams? Our own desires? If you have a daydream and you're indulging those sort of fantasies of what, 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 what it could be like, I'm not going to ask you to share it, don't worry. But what is it? Is it about how you could serve other people? Or is it actually about what if I was successful? What if I was emulated? What if I was loved? What if I had everything and was top dog? Are we so different from James and John 
Or do we also want to be admired? Do we also want to be honored? Do we also want to have everyone say how good we are and how important we are to be higher up the pecking order? The world is actually full of James and Johns. And if I'm honest, I can identify with them. Lord, I, I, I come into your kingdom, I serve you, and what I really want is to be successful and to have that success honored. I'd like to lead a church and it'd be full of people and everyone say, look at Alistair May and the church he leads and how it's all great and, and folk think that's wonderful. That would be brilliant. Why? Because I'm a bit like James and John. And I think in some way we all are. Jesus says the Son of Man did not come to serve but be served and give his life for many. In fact, some of the translations say even the Son of Man. If the Son of Man, if the Lord can do that and is that, how much more should we be willing to serve like that? It's what is said in Philippians where it says, Philippians chapter 2, let the mind of, of Christ be yours, that even though he was in the form of God, didn't consider that to be grasped that with God, but emptied himself and took on human nature, giving himself up, becoming like a slave to die even on a cross. That giving of Jesus, not strutting his stuff, but dying a criminal's death for us. And that is for us, but it's also the model given to us. Think about that very practically. If you work, do you work asking questions about how much can I earn? How can I be promoted? How can I get job satisfaction? How can I be remunerated? How can I be admired? How can I be recognized? How can I feel fulfilled? Or do you work in your workplace asking, how can I be useful to others? How am I able to serve? How am I able to sacrifice that others might be raised up? And as you come to church, do you come to church and think, well, how can I get the most out of this for me? Have the best experience for me? Have the friendship that I need, the recognition that I deserve, the comfort that I need? for my life? Or do you come saying in the presence of God's glory who is given for you, how do I serve and build up and spend myself that others might be raised up and blessed and know something of God's love? And we could take that for every part of our lives, for our parenting, for our marriages, for our relationships, for our participation in neighborhood. Are we looking at it with how does this serve me or are we looking at it as how do I serve, knowing the sacrifice that's been made for us? There is always a choice in life. We can be self-seeking or we can be self-sacrificing. We can look for power or we can look for service. It's a choice that we make every moment of every day. Jesus spends this chapter talking about the death that he's going to die, their friend, their teacher, he's going to die horribly, Jesus says, I'm going to be murdered. I'm going to die. And here are two folk that are so self-focused, not listening to it, that they say, what's in it for me? What's in it for me? And we're told in, in, in the 
in this uh, passage that the other, the other disciples are indignant with them when they hear this. Now, are they indignant because they think that's not any way to treat Jesus? You've missed the whole message of self-sacrifice. No, I don't think they are. They're indignant because they think, I didn't get in there first. I should have bagged my seat, put my towel on it before everybody else did. And that's often the way that we are when we see other people who are grasping and looking for themselves. It's not that we come and we say, we should be servants. It's actually that we come and say, no, it should be about me. That's one of the reasons why when people seem to be blessed or, 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 or raised up in a church, we feel diminished because we immediately think, no, it should be about me. I should, why, why are they getting that? I should get it. That's not fair. Rather than realizing that the one that we follow came and sacrificed himself, and that was not fair. Jesus says, the rulers of the Gentiles, they want to have the best seats and all the rest of it, but it should not be among you. Christians should have a different ethos. But here's the irony of the whole thing. We want to be on your left and your right as you enter into glory. Oh, two people were on Jesus' left and his right as he entered into glory, but they were on crosses, not thrones. That's what Jesus says when he says, can you drink the cup that I'm going to cup? Can you be baptized with the baptism? What he's really saying is, are you willing to make the sacrifice of love rather than come and want to be served and blessed and raised up. Because that is what Jesus is doing for us. He's going from the top to the bottom, from the king of everything to the one with the crown of thorns, and that is at the heart of the gospel. It's interesting if we fast forward the story to the end. James and John will follow him, once they learn what that sacrifice means, once they learn what he has done for them. James will die a martyr's death, sacrificing himself for his Lord. We learn of that in the book of Acts. John will live, according to the Christian tradition, to a very old age. And if you read the letters of John and you read the traditions of John, even in his old age when he was brought up before church congregations, and he was so old he couldn't preach properly. He preached just one line. Love one another. It's all he could say. But somehow he'd grasped what the gospel was always about. That sacrifice given to us in the God who loved us. And that sacrifice that we are called to make as a response to all that he has done. Amen.